Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So I've been out for a little while now. It's been the Passover holiday for the past couple weeks. It was actually also briefly in Nashville, Tennessee earlier this week for a speaking engagement. We're going to get to Nashville a little later in the show and what's going on there. But for present purposes, great to be back in the saddle to our Christian listeners. I hope you had a blessed and beautiful Easter Sunday. And to my fellow Jews, I hope that you had an uplifting, family-centric, and elevating Passover, a wonderful Pesach. Uh, This is actually the first day that we, the Jews, are once again allowed to eat chametz, leavened bread products, essentially. So I know that I am enjoying some pizza and pasta as far as those things go, and I hope that the same can be said for all of you as well there. So it's been an eventful couple of weeks. There's really a lot to talk about. Obviously, this breaking and profoundly troubling story involving this fairly unprecedented Pentagon leak, this massive, massive dumping into a Discord group. I don't even know what Discord is, to be honest with you. Some online silo, seemingly for disaffected males, where this 21-year-old scumbag in Massachusetts has been apprehended, uh, thank goodness, by law enforcement, both local and federal law enforcement. So that is a breaking story. But for purposes of today's show, I want to take a slightly different view. And I want to talk about what my syndicated column also out today is talking about, which is... This theme that I want to emphasize here at the beginning of the show, and then I kind of want to break it down for you, and then we'll come back to it at the end, and you'll see if you, the listener, agree with it. The theme that I want to put forward to you, which is something that we have intimated many times on this show, this is not going to be a shock to you, the loyal listener, the theme is, the only way out is through. Let me say that one more time. The only way out is through. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that there can be no escaping the reality of what we are currently dealing with in America in the year 2023. When it comes to the decadent nature of our culture, when it comes to the overweening and overstepping excesses of the woke left, which is profoundly hegemonic in its ambitions to effectively subjugate us, to make us care, to kind of go back to Eric Erickson's deeply prescient and also harrowing formulation about the same-sex marriage fight about a decade ago, you quote, as Eric said, you will be made to care. This notion that you will be forced to care, you will be forced to bend the knee, you will be forced to bake the damn cake, bigot, as we've seen in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case back in 2018, the 303 creative case before the Supreme Court this term, and any number of others. The point is that you effectively do not have a choice to just kind of sit in your bubble sit in your monastery kind of, you know, deep in kind of rural America because they are going to come for you. The forces of wokeism are going to come for you one way or another. This point was really kind of 
further emphasized to me, we're going to talk about some even more recent examples, but I want to just go back to the topic briefly of our previous conversation, because my column, which was about our previous conversation here, which was the unprecedented crossing of the Rubicon that was Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg's criminal indictment and arraignment of former President Donald Trump, is truly something that if it does not make you think that the only way out is through, then I think you kind of have to have to sit back and think, what are you doing there? Now, I've been fairly explicit on this show about my preferences for 2024. I, I, I was a strong supporter of President Trump's. I, I think that the party, the Republican Party, that is, would be better suited for going in a slightly different direction. And I've kind of been fairly open with you guys that my preference would be Florida Governor Ron DeSantis as the 2024 Republican presidential nominee if he indeed does get into the arena there. But Donald Trump is absolutely not wrong. First of all, he's not wrong, as we discussed ad infinitum in the last episode, that these brag charges are legally meritless, politically imprudent to the nth degree, all of that. I mean, go back and listen to the last show if you want to get back on that. But the point for present purposes is that Trump is also, he's really not wrong when he says that if they can go for him, then surely you or I may well be next. After all, if there is no norm, if there is no notion of civility or democracy or any of these lofty concepts that the left likes to spew on and on and on about but never really bothers to actually uphold, if there is no thing that is stopping them from going after the former president, then what in the world is stopping them from coming after us? Well, obviously, there is nothing stopping them from coming after us. Pro-lifers have learned this all too well. Last summer, of course, you saw these horrific, horrific videos of Merrick Garland's jackboots, otherwise known as the FBI, kind of showing up at the house of a prominent pro-life leader, dragging him off for nonsensical charges pertaining to his attempts to peacefully protest outside of abortion clinics to present alternative information about alternatives to abortion and things of that nature there. We obviously have seen further weaponization of the DOJ going back to the infamous October 2021 memo from Merrick Garland's Department of Justice pertaining to the reference of parents across America animated and up in arms about the utterly vile racial garbage of critical race theory, people who were up in arms at the time go into school board meetings and they were making their opinions such. The Merrick Garland memo referred to them as being analogous to domestic terrorists. Perhaps even most recently, just a couple weeks ago, we saw Douglas Mackey convicted, convicted of formal election interference in the 2016 presidential race for his posting of various memes. Mackey will face a maximum jail time of 10 years in prison notwithstanding the fact that there were people in the 2016 election who did the exact same thing as Mackey did, which is put out factually inaccurate and misleading memes, basically encouraging people to hashtag or text some certain number and that, that you could avoid the line, you didn't have to get out and vote. That's what Mackey did. That's what he was convicted for. Some people on the left were doing the exact same thing. Of course, none of them has faced a single indictment, a single prosecution, let alone a day in prison or anything of that nature there. I mean, how do you not look at all of that 
and conclude that a more muscular, vigorous right simply has no choice whatsoever but to respond in kind prudentially, prudentially and within the confines of the rule of law, of course. But as this show has said time and time again, rewarding friends and punishing enemies within the confines of the rule of law, upping the ante in the short to midterm, further escalating us, admittedly, in an ultimate attempt to reach a long-term de-escalation and detente. That is what this current edifice entails. That is what we on the so-called new right, to the extent that term still means anything anymore, that is really what we're trying to do, is to make our side, make the American right, the office holders, the punditocracy, you name it, the activists, the generic voter, just wake up and smell what is going on out there, and that silence is not an option. Sitting down is not an option. Pretending like you can LARP, like you can live action role play yourself out of this, out of this mess somehow into your monastery. Nonsense. Nonsense. You know, my column out also today, which is on the same topic, the only way out is through, I started it by referencing my good friend Rod Dreher's book in 2017, The Benedict Option. The full title is The Benedict Option, A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. Now, Rod's book was very popular, at least among kind of right of center America. I think it did a lot of good in the conversation. And the basic premise, which is something that would already be intimately familiar to Orthodox and other kind of religiously traditional Jews, is basically this localist focus on kind of Tocquevillian localism, on a cohesive formation of virtuous kind of tight-knit communities as a possible kind of antidote to the ever-hegemonic tide of progressivism, secularism, wokeism, leftism, whatever you want to call it. And I think that's basically sound as far as it goes. I mean, trying to kind of inoculate your children from the woke insanity around us, trying to kind of shield them from the various excesses that are coming at us and really increasingly basically all walks of life at this point. I think it's basically the right option. I mean, there's nothing wrong with rudimentary principles of kind of old school, old school kind of Tocquevillian intermediary institutions between the individual and the state, whether it's churches, schools, obviously the nuclear family, things of that nature. You know, Edmund Burke famously referred to it as the the little platoons. So there's nothing wrong with that. But it's insufficient. It is here's the key point. It is necessary, but insufficient. And it's insufficient because as I said in the column, it undersells modern progressivism, secularism's, quote, fundamentally hegemonic impulse. I wrote, quote, much like Pac-Man, the modern left has an insatiable appetite, attempting to gobble up ever more cultural, political, and geographical terrain and permanently vanquish the forces of traditionalism and Americanism. So let's kind of dive in now. I discussed three examples three recent examples in the column. I want to talk them out here. And let's see if by the end of this, you would agree with me that the only way out truly is through. So one particularly propitious, really kind of a white pill moment, actually, of a recent example, it started with a black pill, quickly kind of turned into a white pill, was this whole recent 
kerfuffle involving Bud Light, which is America's best-selling beer. It is Anheuser-Busch's most popular product. It's kind of the quintessential college beer, I guess, to the extent the college students out there are no longer drinking Bush Light and Natty Light and stuff even more vile. But Bud Light recently had this galling and gobsmacking ad campaign. If you somehow missed this, it was happening right around the Final Four, which recently concluded in Houston, Texas. Much to my chagrin, the Yukon Huskies, the Connecticut Huskies won their fifth, fifth national championship. I say that much to my chagrin because that means that they tie my alma mater, Duke University, the Duke Blue Devils, on the all-time rankings of most NCAA national championships. That is really neither here nor there for present purposes. I'm actually quite happy for Dan Hurley, the coach of UConn. But to get us back to the conversation here, around the time the Final Four was happening in Houston, Texas, Bud Light released this campaign that Dylan Mulvaney, who, if those of you may remember, recently interviewed President Joe Biden. Dylan Mulvaney is a biological male turned into a transgender woman. Bud Light apparently thought it would be a good idea to issue commemorative Bud Light cans to Dylan Mulvaney with Dylan Mulvaney's feminine-looking mug imprinted on the can in order to celebrate Mulvaney's, quote, 365 days of girlhood. I mean, there's so much wrong here, I don't even know where to start. I mean, the backlash to this which by this point happened a week and a half, two weeks ago or so. The backlash was swift, it was voluble, and it has been intense. So as of our recording here, Anheuser-Busch's market capitalization has plummeted to the tune of billions of dollars. Anecdotally, I mean, there have been any number of articles written over the past couple of weeks where bar owners are kind of telling media that no one is ordering Bud Light anymore. I mean, the market cap says a lot obviously. Kid Rock, the famous rock star who is loudly right of center in his politics, he filmed the video of himself shooting Bud Light cans with an AR-looking rifle and then just cursing, F Bud Light, F Anheuser Bush. The, the country star, speaking of Nashville, John Rich, he owns a popular bar in downtown Nashville. It's called the Redneck Riviera Bar, if I remember correctly. He announced that he was pulling all Bud Light from his bar in downtown Nashville because the demand simply wasn't there. It was previously the best-selling beer in his bar, and then he said that no one was buying anymore, so they stopped ordering it. There was a headline from Fox Business earlier this week trying to kind of sum it up. Fox Business wrote in the headline, quote, Bud Light suffers bloodbath as longtime and loyal consumers revolt against transgender campaign. Now, why did they do this? Why in the world would Bud Light do this? I mean, think about who is the median customer for Bud Light. Who is it? I mean, what, a 21 to 35-year-old male? Something along those lines? I mean, maybe 21 to like 49-year-old male or something like that if you want to extrapolate it a little bit. I don't have statistics on this, but I would be pretty shocked if you look at people 
who say they are regular or semi-regular Bud Light drinkers, I would be pretty shocked if they were not more Republican-leaning in general than Democratic-leaning. That could be either upstream or downstream of the, of the kind of broader political realignment that has happened over the past five, 10 years or so, really more, probably 10, 15 years or so, as the Republican Party has increasingly become the Bud Light and Blue Jeans party, no longer kind of the, the rosé wine-sipping country club party of yesteryear that increasingly is actually the Democratic Party. So we're talking here about a presumptively right of center or at absolute best politically moderate drinkership, if I can kind of just coin a new term, that is almost assuredly, almost assuredly vast majority male. We know based on basic voting information that men vote Republican and are typically just more politically conservative in general, of course, across a whole litany of issues than women are holding all else equal. So what in the world was the VP of Bud Light thinking? This woman named Alyssa Heinerscheid. What in the world was Alyssa Heinerscheid thinking when she thought that this would be a good idea? Well, we actually know what Alyssa Heinerscheid was thinking because a video has emerged. In a video from March 30th, she went on the, quote, Make Yourself at Home podcast, and Alyssa Heinerscheid said, I'm a businesswoman. I had a really clear job to do when I took over Bud Light. And it was, this brand is in decline. It's been in decline for a really long time. And if we do not attract young drinkers to come and drink this brand, there will be no future. She went on to further denigrate Bud Light's core audience as being overly, quote, fratty. And apparently they thought it would be a good idea to put a biological male who goes around styling himself as a transgender woman on the can. The number of texts that I got from fairly apolitical friends, friends who do not do this for a living, who are not engaged in the day-to-day mudslinging, who don't follow this stuff as closely, maybe as you or perhaps others, or especially myself, of course, do. The number of texts that I got was astounding. I got numerous texts basically along the following lines when this first broke out and the story first getting out there. Been a longtime customer, Josh. I'm never going to order Bud Light again. I'm done with them. Done. I got some version of this text from a lot of people. And, you know, if you take this vice president of marketing for Bud Light, Dolt Alyssa, at her word, if you take her at her word, she's trying to update the brand. She's trying to do outreach to new audiences, yada, yada, yada. I don't buy it. I do not buy that this was some innocuous anodyne exercise in brand expansion, You know what this is? This is just another example of bake the damn cake bigot. It's a slightly less condescending, a slightly less totalitarian example, admittedly. But what is happening here is a major corporation, Anheuser-Busch, which at this point, of course, is ultimately owned by InBev, which is a Belgian company. This is Anheuser-Busch, using its woke vice president of marketing to foist, foist a deeply divisive agenda down the throats, down the gullets 
of its otherwise disapproving right of center and predominantly male audience. That is what's going on here. You want to know what woke capital is, what woke corporations are, what the problem is there? This is it. This is it. The criticism is that these corporations, the board, the C-suite, the executives, are no longer simply interested in fulfilling their fiduciary duty to shareholders to maximize returns and to otherwise best financially steer the corporation. No. They are profoundly interested. They have arrogated unto themselves the responsibility to try to dictate a social and cultural agenda. Even the products whose customer base is clearly, clearly right of center, skeptical, if not outright hostile. That is ultimately what is going on here. But again, the pushback has been astounding. And as Bush's market cap has dropped billions and billions of dollars, every other way you look, all the headlines are about how much of a disaster this was. And no shit, it's a disaster. I mean, like, what did you idiots think would happen? Seriously, what did you idiots think would happen? When you have Bud Light, which is basically just as American as apple pie or skirting on your income tax. I mean, like, what did you think would happen? When you have Bud Light and you're putting a transgender activist, one of the current most third rail issues in all of American politics and the American culture, what the hell did you idiots think would happen? Putting a transgender person on the can. Unbelievable. But the takeaway here for purposes of the only way out is through, is that the boycott is making Anheuser-Busch feel the pain right now. In fact, you had some off-record comments, the New York Post, the Daily Wire, seems like to some various right-of-center media companies. You had some off-record comments from other kind of Bud Light, C-suite, vice president-type higher-ups lamenting that they were blindsided by this. Oh, who was doing this? Why did the marketing team do this? We were not apprised by that. You know, that kind of stuff. You know that they're hurting. You know, once upon a time, conservatives tended to eschew. They, they tended to not be a big fan of concerted economic boycotts, things of that nature. You know, I think back to the Chick-fil-A fight. You know, it seems almost, almost like a bygone era, but before the transgender issue was the hot issue, the hot issue when it comes to the LGBT agenda was the same-sex marriage issue and whether or not we as a society should redefine the institution of marriage, which has existed Hitherto undisturbed for thousands of years, and ultimately, if you really want to get into it, was ultimately ordained by God himself. But that ship has sailed, so to speak, at least for the time being, thanks to the egregious 2015 Supreme Court decision known as Obergefell. But prior to that, around 2012, 2013 or so, so if you kind of think back to the same-sex marriage battles, the first Supreme Court pronouncement on same-sex marriage was the Windsor case of 2013. That's when they said DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, a Clinton-era statute, they said it was unconstitutional on kind of vague kind of federalism grounds, another nonsensical opinion. That was 2013. 2012 was when the Obama-Biden re-election campaign formally came out in favor of same-sex marriage. So, you know, it was around then, if I recall, 2012, 2013, 2014, that the left decided to really try to boycott Chick-fil-A, the very popular Georgia-based Fast food fried chicken company, and why were they boycotting Chick-fil-A? Well, they were boycotting Chick-fil-A because the Kathy family, who founded Chick-fil-A, Truett Kathy, and the Kathy family continues to run this privately held company, Chick-fil-A, to this day. They are devout Christians. 
And they have the beliefs on the institution of marriage that you would expect a devout Christian to have, that it is an institution for one man and one, one woman, and it is unfit for any other combination of people. And they donated to causes that believed in that. I believe kind of probably known the National Organization for Marriage, a, a group formerly run, perhaps presently run by uh, a, a man named Brian Brown, if I recall. And what did the left do to Chick-fil-A? Well, they tried to boycott them. It hasn't really worked. You know, Chick-fil-A has expanded greatly since then, perhaps because their product is just quite simply so, so tasty and popular. But they sure tried. And I remember at that time that a lot of people on the right, when this conversation was aired, like, oh, what are we going to do to the companies? And you know, this is kind of before, like, the true emergence of Wool Capital. This was before Nike and Colin Kaepernick and all of that garbage. So this ship was really just starting to take off around a decade ago. And at least at that time, you had a lot of people on the right who said like, no, no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do this. This is this is too much. Why would we try to manipulate the market? Don't kind of interject politics into my personal consumption decisions, into my personal way of life decisions, things like that. And. At the time, I remember saying that that was a mistake. And here we are a decade later, and it clearly seems like it was a mistake because now it's working. Now it is working. Again, you know, I think on the one hand, conservatives, activists could have just kind of thrown up their hands and say, all right, whatever, screw it. Another woke company gone, eh, whatever. I'll order a Coors Light next time, not a Bud Light. But there's been this concerted effort to boycott the product. And my point is that it has worked. Again, we don't know yet whether or not Bud Light will back down from this, but they're hurting. They are definitely, definitely hurting right now. You know, I think back to the penultimate paragraph from Governor DeSantis's late February op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. He was talking about his fight with the Walt Disney Company. And here's, here is the penultimate paragraph. This is what comes to mind here. The governor writes, quote, When corporations try to use their economic power to advance a woke agenda, they become political and not merely economic actors. In such an environment, reflexively deferring to big business effectively surrenders the political battlefield to the militant left. Having private companies wield de facto public power isn't in the best interests of most Americans. Having private companies wield de facto public power isn't in the best interests of most Americans. I just wanted to reread that line because that really is, to a large extent, what Bud Light tried to do here with this appalling and gobsmacking stunt with Dylan Mulvaney. So once again, we see that on the one hand, you could have just sat quiet, but the only way out is through. Let's consider now another recent example, and it involves a city that, as I said, I was actually in earlier this week, just for a little quick overnight trip, and that would have been Nashville, Tennessee. So in Tennessee, in Nashville, about two and a half weeks ago or so, you had this tragic, truly tragic and profoundly disturbing school shooting at a Christian school, which was committed by a transgender lunatic who apparently was an alum of the Christian school seems to me has become 
a radical anti-Christian bigot based on just my reading of the situation here. Can't say for sure because the manifesto, which Nashville police has found, they refused to release it. They seem like they're refusing to release it because there have been some not so thinly veiled threats from the LGBT lobby. I've seen some tweets out there, really. I mean, saying like, you cannot do this. It's dangerous to the transgender community if you release the manifesto that presumably will show that this transgender lunatic who murdered three school children and three adults will be dangerous to tra- to transgender people everywhere if this manifesto is released. Never mind the fact that this transgender lunatic was radicalized as such was clearly, clearly an existential life or death danger all too tragically for the Christians in that school in Nashville. In any event, maybe, maybe the manifesto will be released, maybe it won't. But in the aftermath of this, Governor Bill Lee, who is a generally excellent governor of Tennessee, a state that I consider clearly one of the other leading red states in the country right now, along with my current state of Florida, Governor Bill Lee basically signed an executive order into law that would implement more stringent requirements for getting the state's background check system into place when it comes to kind of the arrest record, mental health concerns, things of that nature, and also signed a law. I can't say I necessarily support. It would be one of those so-called red flag laws where you can basically put a red flag into a court and there's no such thing as due process here. It's all kind of constitutionally suspect to a large extent, depending on exactly how the law is written and how it is promulgated and ultimately carried out. And um, ultimately under a red flag law regime, law enforcement can basically go to remove, if need be, an allegedly troubled person's firearms. Again, this all happens without due process. I find the whole thing a little sordid, not to mention probably ineffectual at stopping the very mass shootings that lawmakers are rightfully concerned with stopping, but neither here nor there. Governor Lee has overseen a red flag law now in Tennessee, but that didn't stop protesters recently from going to the Tennessee State Capitol in Nashville And recently you had protesters go into the building itself and overtake the Tennessee State House Representatives Legislative Chamber, the building itself. You know, if I were a rube and if I just took what the CNN Chirons or the New York Times editorial board tells me seriously about what the proper word to use is when people come charging into a chamber of public deliberation a capital-looking building, I would think to call this, hmm, what is it? Oh, I remember now, an insurrection. But it was even more of an insurrection when they actually got lawmakers involved. This, of course, did not happen on January 6, 2021. But here in Tennessee, when the loud protesters came clamoring into the halls and ultimately all the way into the legislative chamber itself, you had... At least three Democrats in the overwhelmingly Republican state house who openly sympathize and kind of egged on the protesters, both on the floor and up in the gallery. And two men in particular, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, can both clearly be seen in the video after the incident showing this frothing pro-gun control mob that is kind of entering the state capitol to 
demand in mostly peaceful but fiery, of course, fashion, to kind of borrow the infamous CNN phrasing. They are here demanding increased gun control. And in the video, you clearly see these two state representatives, Justin Jones and Justin Pearson, shouting into a bullhorn. They are flying protest signs. They are leading the gallery in various chants, the most kind of vapid stuff, you know, no justice, no peace, you know, all that kind of drivel. And what happens after the fact? Well, Republicans who hold a supermajority in that chamber actually end up expelling Justin Jones and Justin Pearson for openly flouting Tennessee House rules, which is what they did. What I just described to you, the bullhorn, the protest signs, that openly flouts and violates Tennessee House rules for lawmakers. Now, there were some folks who said that Tennessee Republicans, they overreached here. This was an overreach. Why can't they just be nice and civil like the old establishment country club Republicans of yesteryear? Why can't we all just get along? Let's agree to disagree. Well, I'll tell you why. First of all, it's worth pointing out that these expulsions were deeply ineffectual because both of the men, Justin Pierce and Justin Jones, have literally already been reinstated by their respective city council and county commissioned. They're from Memphis and Nashville, the state's two largest urban areas. But holding that aside, I'll tell you why this was not an overreach. Because again, if you look at what the left, in this particular case, Attorney General Merrick Garland and his Department of Justice, if you look at what they are doing with the closest analog, which naturally would be the January 6, 2021 Jamboree at the U.S. Capitol, if you look at what DOJ is doing, when it comes to these myriad prosecutions of individuals, most of whom, most of whom were thoroughly nonviolent who just traipsed around the Capitol. Of course, there's some video seeming to show U.S. Capitol Police just letting these people in. My stance is not that January 6th was a good day, to be clear. There is much, much, much to lament. And anyone who was actually genuinely violent deserves to be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. But the vast majority of the people who are currently being prosecuted by Merrick Garland's Department of Justice do not fit that description. They simply do not. Let me put it this way. The most iconic person from January 6, 2021, the guy that is mostly known as the QAnon shaman. You guys know who I'm talking about. He's wearing that ridiculous, utterly ridiculous attire headset, whatever you want to call it. What he did is nothing, nothing compared to what Justin Jones and Justin Pearson did here. The QAnon shaman did not actively disrupt a deliberative session of the United States Congress. Justin Jones and Justin Pearson did. They actively egged on and incited a mob to take over against not just basic norms of decorum, norms, civility, all that stuff the left pretends to like, but actually doesn't give a damn about. They didn't just do that. They actively violated the rules. They broke the rules, period. So, yes, I suppose Tennessee Republicans could have just censure. They could have just formally issued a censure of Justin Jones and Justin Pearson. But why in the world, in a situation like this, when the prosecutorial apparatus of the left is coming at the right with everything they've got, Let's go back to Donald Trump and Douglas Mackey and all of that. 
And then here in the context of the January 6th prosecutions, why in the world, in this particular context, would Tennessee Republicans not feel rightfully emboldened to actually expel these two people? Obviously, it ended up being ineffectual. Maybe, maybe there was something else that might have might have been considered ineffectual, I mean, insofar as they are, already, they are both already back in the legislative session. But surely, this was not an overreach. Again, fight fire with fire. The only way out is through. Let's consider one final example here. So one thing we've covered a little bit on this podcast, actually more than a little bit, we had a whole episode dedicated to the turning point in the woke jihad that I refer to it as. That was Fifth Circuit Judge Kyle Duncan shouting down out at Stanford Law School. He was totally shouted down by this execrable, frothing mob of mini Rosepierre jackals. These utter, utter galling idiots who held the most juvenile of signs pertaining to sexual anatomy, one wretched miscreant, one wretched deplorable human being of a Stanford law student apparently shouted to Judge Duncan, quote, we hope your daughter gets raped. I mean, my God. We covered that in depth. And Judge Duncan, to his credit, has done a lot of the media circuit about it. He wrote a Wall Street Journal op-ed about it, things of that nature. But so far at least until a couple weeks ago, there was no kind of outside pressure that was put on Stanford Law School. So Jenny Martinez, the dean of the law school, if you recall, she issued a fairly good letter after this was all over where she kind of reaffirmed Stanford Law School's commitment to free speech under XYZ citations and principles, yada, yada, yada. The problem, I mean, thank goodness the DEI dean, Tyrion Steinbach, who was at the center of this whole controversy, was put on administrative leave. It remains to be seen whether she will be fully and formally terminated. She, of course, should be. The problem with Dean Martinez's letter was that the students were let off scot-free with impunity for shouting down a federal appellate judge of whom there are under 200 in the entire country, someone whose opinion matters you idiots, whether you agree with him or her or not. So this required what my friend and another former guest on the show, Ilya Shapiro, what he referred to in a recent op-ed for us in Newsweek, he referred to as, quote, exogenous shocks to the system. This is what was, was required because Dean Martinez's letter and her course of action prescribed did not go far enough. Again, Dean Steinbach was properly punished. Needs to go further, needs to be fully fired, but it was a good start, good start. But the students were let off scot-free, which is nonsense. So what happened? Well, in his speech to receive the Jurist of the Year Award at the recent annual banquet for the Texas Review of Law and Politics, which goes by TROLP for short, that is the Right of Center Journal of Legal Scholarship for the University of Texas School of Law. I was actually just there a few weeks ago to give a talk myself. So when he was receiving, when he was receiving the annual Jurist of the Year Award at the recent TROLP banquet in Austin, Texas, Judge James C. Ho of the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit 
And here's your disclosure. He is my former boss. Judge Ho announced in his Trump acceptance speech that he would be extending his previously announced boycott of hiring law clerks from Yale Law School, which he had announced and was soon joined by 11th Circuit Judge Lisa Branch. They announced that last year after a similar, following a similar sordid incident, not quite as galling as the Judge Duncan incident, but pretty bad, pertaining to Kristen Wagoner of the Alliance Defending Freedom at Yale Law School. So in his trope acceptance speech a couple weeks ago, Judge Ho announced that he would now be adding Stanford Law School to the list of law schools where he is going to boycott the hiring of possible law clerks from. Judge Branch quickly joined that as well. Now, this has created kind of a real divide, actually, in the in the federal judiciary. The same way that you kind of have a similar divide between kind of the, the go-along-to-get-along elements of kind of the older Republican Party, kind of the Mitch McConnell, John Thune, John Cornyn types, and you kind of have these younger, scrappier conservatives now, people like Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance. You obviously have it in the punditocracy as well, on the right-of-center punditocracy. You have your... You know, your, your controlled opposition, go along to get along, right liberal types like your David French, for God's sake, your Jonah Goldberg, people like that. And then you have your much harder hitting conservatives who know what time it is, so to speak, to use the somewhat overwrought, but nonetheless still helpful phrase. So too, on the federal judiciary, do you have some judges who are more establishment, chamber of commerce, country club, Georgetown cocktail party seeking, go along to get along. We sit as judges on a court together. We, de- we debate cases and discuss the legal details. We have to be collegial. Norm, civility. You guys know how it goes by now. Yet again, though, yet again, if you want to have any attempt to salvage, in this particular case, the nation's leading institutions of legal education, Yale Law School, Stanford Law School, I, I, have, to, <laughs> I have to note that my own legal alma mater at the University of Chicago Law School has thus far been pretty admirably immune to this sort of wokeism. We will see how long that lasts. God willing, it will last a while. But if you want to have any chance at using the same sort of market pressure that the pushback to Anheuser Bush over the Dylan Mulvaney episode has caused, the way to do that is for judges, employers, state bar exams, those exogenous shocks to the system that Ellie Shapiro referred to that I mentioned earlier, you have to have that go into place and penalize to punish Stanford Law School so as to effectively publicly shame their administration and Dean Jenny Martinez to going further and actually trying to hold responsible the mini Robespierre students who shouted those vile things, who shouted down an esteemed federal judge and so forth, and ultimately just gets these other law schools, and really just to extrapolate other institutions of higher education in general to put in strong speech protections for students, faculty, speakers, and all of that. So on the one hand, kind of go back to the Benedict option phrasing, on the one hand, if you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, if frankly, if you just love this country, if you are an Americanist, America first, whatever. If that is any of you, you can choose the proverbial kind of Benedict option 
or at least kind of the extrapolated extreme version of the Benedict option from a legal education perspective. And you can kind of go to Regents Law School, uh, Ave Maria, maybe BYU, although BYU has actually had its own recent incident pertaining to a canceled talk from a conservative law professor. If it's happening at BYU, my God, we're in deep trouble. So you could do that, or you could fight back. I know what I want. I want our people, in this specific case, our judges, who have market power to shift incentive structures for law schools to make sure that the rising next generation of lawyers, legal academics, judges, prosecutors, and so forth are not mollycoddled crybabies of the highest order, but are actually reasonably mature, well-formed, or somewhat well-formed adults capable of developing the sound Republican habits of mind without which this intergenerational compact that is these United States cannot possibly long endure. I know what I want. So once again, kudos. Kudos to Judge Ho. Kudos to Judge Branch. Where are the other judges, by the way? Why are you not joining this? Surely there are other judges right now in the federal judiciary who know what time it is besides Judge Ho and Judge Branch. But for now, kudos to Judge Ho and Judge Branch for showing yet again that the only way out is through. So I'm curious for what you guys think, if you agree with, with my overarching thesis here, that indeed, to kind of just say one more time, that the only way out is through. You can hide to the best extent you can, but as the saying goes, you can ultimately run, but you can't hide because the hegemonic tide of secularism, progressivism, and wokeism is gonna get you one way or the other. So good thing that we have people pushing back against Anheuser-Busch. Good thing that we have muscular, vigorous action by Republicans in Tennessee, hopefully in all other state legislative chambers across the country. And good thing that we have judges like Judge Ho and Judge Branch leading the way on this boycott of Stanford Law School. We're going to need a lot more than that, but it's a hell of a start. And I will see you next week on that note. I hope that you, too, agree that the only way out is through. You can tell me what you think by going to... The Josh Hammer Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can go ahead and leave us a five-star review. And tell me what you think. Is the only way out through, or can we effectively kind of Benedict option on steroids this thing where we all kind of live in our own proverbial monasteries? Tell me. Let me know. Am I all face here? I look forward to your comments. But I will see you next week, guys. And until then, hope you have a great weekend. I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. Being a staple in American media for over 90 years, Newsweek now brings you an exceptional lineup of podcasts. The debate. They'll recognize how these policies aren't working. They'll feel the pain and they'll change their behavior. The Josh Hammer Show. Restore the principles and the political paradigms of the American founding. The Crystal Knight Show. Just because officers are black doesn't mean that the policing system still isn't inherently racist. Fast women. Chevy's actually doing really well and Honda's really not. Wow. It's like the opposite of most people's perception of them. It is. The parting shot. Every year when the new nominations are announced, I get this excited, nostalgic feeling, and it brings out that little kid in me who just loved movies. The Royal Report. Harry and Meghan's head of comms has announced they now move forward to their kind of future outside the royal family. Newsweek Podcasts. New episodes drop weekly. Download or listen now at Newsweek.com or wherever you get your podcasts.